Hey, lab rats. It is I, Igor, coming at you from a non-lab location. Hopefully, the quality will be good or Queen V will kill me. I'm currently sweating my ass off and <laughs> with no air, but I do have water. So let's uh, get through this together, shall we? I decided to start a couple of uh, news segments. And um, the first, we're going to start Newsflash near me. They found a body in Alum Creek. Now, this is according to 10 TV News and 6 on your side. On June 28th, a kayaker was uh, out collecting trash or something, found a leg in a bin, like the humankind, and ended up being a total body. It was ID'd as 37-year-old Timothy Robert Markham of Columbus, according to the fingerprints. He died of an apparent gunshot wound with the tox report still pending, because obviously this is recent. Timothy Baldrick was arrested on the 3rd for abuse of a corpse and tampering with evidence. The hearing is set for Tuesday the 13th. Bail was set for $200,000. According to another place I looked, tragedyinfo.com, he had been missing, doesn't give any specifics. And I didn't look in it too much because it's still developing, but I did want to mention toward this victim here a quote from a family member. A unique soul with a great personality, has an amazing sense of humor, diligent and caring. He always brought out light to every room he entered, and he will be dearly missed by family, friends, and everyone. A life so beautifully lived deserves to be beautifully remembered. Please join us to mourn the passing of Timothy Robert Markham. That's locally near me, dudes. Ugh. The next segment is OMG. Cosby out of prison. Holy shit. 60 accusers feel they were thrown under the bus. And I didn't go to attorney school, but he was denied protection against self-incrimination is what came out uh, why he was let go. The court said that a prosecutor's decision not to charge Cosby, who's 83, in an earlier case opened the door for him to speak freely in a lawsuit against him, thinking he would not incriminate himself criminally. A second prosecutor later used the lawsuit testimony in a criminal trial, and that testimony was key in his conviction years later. So the state Supreme Court, I think it's in Pennsylvania, said Cosby could not be retried on the same charges. Uh, OMG. Under that, it kind of is under OMG, but I don't know how often we'll have this, but I just happened to find a Mansfield man crime. Listen to this shit. This is according to Cairo 7, K-I-R-O. I like Cairo. Man who killed mother cut heart out in 1981, heading back to hospital following prison stint. Yep, this happened November 2nd, 2020. An Ohio man killed his mother and cut out her heart was back in court Monday for a hearing in a separate assault case. So this Charles McKinley was 60 and he was in court to determine his placement after he completed a prison sentence for assaulting two nursing staff members at Heartland Behavioral Health in Massillon in 2004. So he didn't go on to bigger and better, well, bigger and better things, grosser things, worser things. But he was a patient at the facility at the time, was convicted in 2007 of the felonious assault, and sentenced to 15 years in prison. And he tells his attorney, just get me off. I've done enough time. I'm not sure why everyone sounds like that, but I just, that, I don't, can't do accents or whatever. Now the history, 
for him is he was committed to a psychiatric hospital after being found not guilty by reason of insanity in the fatal stabbing of his mother, Tiny McKinley, 47. He was 20 at the time, and he was staying at the YMCA, and somehow, obviously he's very mentally ill, got the idea that his mother was a devil's consort. He thought if he killed his mother, the devil would commit suicide or be killed by the police. Yeah. When the police got there, he was holding her heart in his hand. So Dude also cut the hand of a daughter of a woman he was staying with when she came to assist him in leaving. So I guess her mom was like, okay, you're weird. I've been nice. Get the fuck out. And he's like, not so fast. And so she sent her daughter over. Whatever. I don't know. Maybe her daughter's a badass. But she got cut but had some stitches in her hand. He was found incompetent to stay in trial for that offense and was hospitalized at Lima State Hospital. Good call. He showed signs of, scare- of paranoid schizophrenia. I wanted to combine those and call them paraschizophrenia or something. But it was determined that he could become competent to stay in trial with proper treatment. Because that usually works, right? I don't know. Does it? He had previously been diagnosed with schizophrenia following a three-week hospital stay in 1979 the news report said. McKinley escaped from a mental hospital near Cleveland in 1987. He was recaptured about two weeks later at a motel in Birmingham, Alabama. He was indicted in January of 04 on the two assault charges stemming from the attack on the nurses and sent to prison. So back to today times. A mental evaluation was ordered for him to determine where to send him. Under the terms of his commitment, he's required to undergo evaluations every two years. Let's hope this happens, because I immediately thought of Cletus P. Reese, old CPR and his sister, who would talk the facility out of that, and then look what he did. So come to find out, McKinley had not undergone a mental evaluation since his incarceration began. Oi. Prosecutors recommended he be sent to Twin Valley Behavioral Healthcare in Columbus while he's awaiting the evaluation. That sets up at that dude, and I hope that he stays put, but yeah, he, he doesn't have a lot of patience for his attorney. Now, on to our main event here. So I've got several, I think I've got five for you, and then we have another new segment that we'll get to. So the first one we're going to start with is the Evansdale Murders. Now, as I was looking this up, I saw that True Crime Garage had done this, and I may have heard it and don't remember it. I listened to so many podcasts, and I've listened to True Crime Garage for years. I'm probably going to have to check theirs out, too, just to see. But according to the lineup, which I love, I get their daily email about books and creepy stuff and murders, so you should check them out, thelineup.com. It was July 13th of 2012. Elizabeth Collins and Lyric Cook Morrissey were cousins and they were staying at their grandma Wilma Cook's home in Evansdale, Iowa. The girls decided to go for a bike right around noon that day and were seen near Myers Lake, about a mile from her grandma's house, from the grandma's house. When they weren't home back in an hour, Wilma started to worry. Then Lyric's mother, Misty, shows up to pick up the girls and since she wasn't there, they weren't there, they started calling around friends and family to track him down. When this didn't help anything, Elizabeth and Lyric were reported as missing to the police. The Black Hawk County Sheriff's Department and the local fire department joined in the search. 
Later that same day, the girl's bikes and Elizabeth's purse was found near the corner of Myers Lake. Then the volunteers and the media get involved, the FBI, after an unmentioned amount of time in the article, and they focused on the lake. Divers first went in, didn't find anything, then they just drained the lake. Cadaver dogs and infrared aircraft was tried, but nothing, nothing was located of the girls. By the end of the year, they did locate a surveillance tape finding that Elizabeth and Lyric around 11 p.m., like right after they started their bike ride, but that was it. They found them riding near the store, and that's it. This helped to determine the timeline of their disappearance. December 5th, hunters found bodies in the Seven Bridges Wildlife Area, 25 miles from their grandma's home, unfortunately. Lyric's father, Dan, was focused on, because get this, he had drug involvement and was in jail at the time of the girls vanishing, and they let him out so he could be with his family. He'd previously been arrested for domestic violence against Misty, Lyric's mom. Dude got sentenced to 90 years, 90 years, for three sets of drug charges. He denied any correlation between him and the missing girls due to his past, although there's been a lot of speculation. So obviously July 13th will be the ninth anniversary and the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit suspect profile says that they believe the person to be part of the community. Get this shit. I know you have to because you're listening. So when I was looking this up to find more information, because I thought maybe they would explain more about the dad or what happened after or something, I found this shit. Police search home of a woman in murder-suicide after claims of evidence in Evansdale case. So 2018, Teresa Catherine Gurleman, 36, and her 8-year-old son, Henry Fields, died May 4th after she, for an unknown reason stood in front of a train in an eastern Iowa city and pulled her son in its path with her. What a way to go, Jesus! Not only did the cops search her home to find out why she did it, see if they could figure something out, they also were looking for a connection to the Evansdale murders. So WTF is what I'm saying. Evidently, Gurleman made statements to a co-worker that she hung out with some dudes and they were drinking one night or whatever and they wrote a six-page letter basically giving the details of the murders of the girls in Evansdale. That brings me to the next thing I found from medium.com and its title is Delphi Murders Possibly Linked to Identical Case in Iowa. This could be a serial killer. It's from March of 2021, so recent. The Murders of the, the Evansdale murders were only 400 miles from Abby and Libby, the Delphi murders, which hopefully you're familiar with, but if not, look it up. I'm going to mention some details of it, but of course, maybe you've heard of the bridge guy, so that's kind of what they're thinking. But six months after the Delphi murders, 15-year-old Kathleen Shepard was walking home from school with her 12-year-old friend, Deasy Hughes, in the town of Dayton, Iowa. They were abducted by a man saying he wanted to pay them for mowing his lawn. Mm-hmm. Then took him to a pig farm where he worked. I was trying to think what good comes at a pig farm. But I really like bacon. But when you're just driven there, nothing good unless you're given bacon. Dude zip ties them in his truck. Then he takes Kathleen. Desi was left alone. She broke free and ran for help. Badass. When the police got there, 
they found the asshole abductor dead by taking his own life. They didn't say how. They just said they found his body. He was later identified as Michael Clunder, a registered sex offender, of course, from Stratford, Iowa. Kathleen's body was eventually found in the Des Moines River by fishermen on June 7th of 2013. And that's about 20 miles down river from the pig farm where she had been stabbed and beaten to death. God, what a monster. The police suspected a connection between the Dayton and Evansdale cases, but the Evansdale police didn't believe Clunder was in the area at the time in Delphi, and so that they ruled him out. How does this resemble the Evansdale case? Let's take a look, shall we? Abby and Libby were hiking in a remote area when they went missing in February 2017, and they were on the Moon High Bridge, okay? There's a pattern, it says here, connecting the two incidents, and here are the facts. They were similar in adolescent white females. They were unaccompanied. There was a remote location. They were dumped on land used for hunting. An unrelated assailant family members ruled out. So, what do you think? I think it's kind of, I don't know. In a way, you want there to be a connection because you want to hope that this isn't the, the dude's done, dead, and it won't happen again. But in the other way, it's kind of like, are they going to focus too much on that and stop looking? I don't think so, though, because they are really wanting to locate the murderer. My heart goes out to, again, Libby and Abby's family after seeing them, especially at CrimeCon, and now to the Evansdale murder victims. I just hate this to keep happening. But I love the name Lyric. Lyric is such a beautiful name. So here's to Elizabeth Collins and Lyric Cook Morrissey. We're going to move on to the death of Stanley Meyer. Now, someone brought this to me. And this is kind of a different one. We got a couple of different ones this week in um, what I normally do. This is a death, but it's a conspiracy death. If you think it is, you may not. Let's get into it. The actual date of the death was March 21st of 98. This happened Cracker Barrel in Grove City, Ohio. And yes, the story is how we got the name of today's episode. Dude walks in, orders cranberry juice and the soup of the day. 10 minutes later, he would be dead. His last words an accusation of murder. Stanley Myers. Now, just to be completely open, I found Myers and I found Meyer. It said it in different, everywhere I looked, it had different. I may say Myers and I may say Meyer. What I'm reading here from Hero Labs, they say Myers. He was a prolific inventor and rather eccentric. Between 1960 and his death, he applied for nearly 200,000 patents from electronic banking, oceanography, heart monitors, but he had no formal qualifications or training as a scientist. He just loved to experiment, do innovate, innovative type things. He was also very religious who swore that God sent him the ideas. He was known to exclaim, praise God and pass the ammunition. Huh, that seems like an embroidered pillow thing. At seemingly random intervals, he would just belt that out. By 1989, he had been granted so many patents that the U.S. Patent Office decided to put him on a fast-track program. I guess there's such a thing. Like rides, when you want to go on rides and you have that fast pass, he had a fast pass for, you know, patents. Good for him. If you believe the conspiracy theories, this may be one of the factors that led to his death. So let's go back to Cracker Barrel, because it's real good, but also that's where the story is. 
Stanley Myers was having a business meeting with two Belgian investors relating to his most recent invention, the water-powered car. Now, I don't real know science, but I'm going to just tell you, it could supposedly cross the United States on just 75 liters of distilled water, emitting only oxygen as waste. And it was supposedly was going to revolutionize transport and transform the industry. Not only would it change the world, it would create astronomical wealth. He said he was working on a prototype, which was a dune buggy, painted in a spectacular shade of retina damage orange, emblazoned with a gaudy American flag and the words, Jesus Christ is Lord. This meeting concluded with a toast. He took a sip of his cranberry juice, convulsed, grasped at his neck, burst from his seat, ran from the restaurant to the parking lot where he collapsed. As he's laying in the parking lot, he gasped. And he said to those that surrounded him, they poisoned me. Then he totally died. So Meyer's invention purported to work by freeing the hydrogen molecule in water, its accompanying oxygen molecules, allowing the highly flammable hydrogen to be burnt as a fuel source. This process is known as electrolysis, which is what I used to get my hairs gone. So I had no idea. The process is real and very well documented. But unfortunately, it takes the same amount of energy to break the bond as it is released when it's formed. In other words, releasing energy from water will always consume more energy than it produces. It's science. So, how did Myers really die? Many conspiracy theorists, which I love, still believe it was an assassination. He was said to have drawn mysterious visitors from around the globe, attracted lucrative buyout offers from shady offshore companies, and even allegedly had been the subject of a state-sponsored espionage. Even Myers' brother suspected foul play. He met with two investors the next day after the meeting, after this happened, to tell them, the Belgian dudes, that Stanley died. He didn't make it. I told them that Stan had died and they never said a word, he recalled. Absolutely nothing. No condolences, no questions, not a word. I never, ever had a trust of those two men ever again. Well, no shit. Old Grove City Police, we call them Grove Tucky around here, or Grove City, that's probably just me. The conclusion from the police department? Brain aneurysm. Stanley Myers had a history of high blood pressure and died of a cerebral aneurysm. Toxicology report came back spotless. He'd not ingested any poison, not even alcohol. They said it was natural causes. And no charges, charges of course, were ever filed. Poor dude dies, and the fighting over his ideas starts. Other investors fought over the rights to his estate and intellectual property. Now, if it's someone's intellectual property and they're dead, I mean, intellectual property, doesn't it die with the person? No, we want to make money off of it. The courts found that Meyer had committed gross and egregious fraud and ordered that the investors be repaid $25,000. There were allegations that the whole story was a cover for a sophisticated money laundering scheme. Meyer's name was dragged through the mud, his reputation tarnished, and his invention largely forgotten. Patents have now expired, putting the technology in the public domain and available for use by anyone without restriction or royalty payment. So I think I read somewhere you can go to like Google patents or I don't know, that's a thing. Something, Google something. And you could totally like do it. According to Gaia.com, his brother was at the restaurant with him. So, like I said, the first thing I read didn't mention his brother. This says that his brother was with them and the investors. And, of course, it reiterates that Stephen Meyer insists that his brother was murdered. 
his feeling, his brother Stephen, is that the invention of the water-powered car posed an incalculable threat to billions of oil industry dollars and untold fortunes. And he said that he'd successfully resisted succumbing to numerous buyout offers. The inventor had warded off pressure from numerous overseas visitors and weathered persistent government spying operations. Stanley also, I found him, he had his own listing on IMDb. I found out he was a twin and his story was mentioned in Suppressed Inventions, a documentary from 2019. So that's why it was on IMDb. Suppressed Inventions, I think you can find it on Netflix. I'm not sure. Did Cracker Barrel kill Stanley Meyer? Dun, dun, dun. All right, we're going to roll into the dad joke time a little early because the next few are pretty much doozies. So want to get this out of the way. We had a little lighter fare, but not really. So what do killers and ball sacks have in common? Killers and ball sacks. They're both nutcases. This policeman caught a killer, and he had a real bad stammer. They said it'll be a while before he finishes his sentence. Museum founder murder, a.k.a. Baton Rouge badass. Now, I really connected with this story. I had seen it a few months ago when I was doing other research, and I just... This woman is so incredible. I got this from CNN.com. Sadie Roberts-Joseph was a well-known advocate in the Baton Rouge area. She was 75, and she founded the Odell S. Williams Now and Then African American Museum in 2001. She also founded Community Against Drugs and Violence, a nonprofit organization focused on creating a safer environment for children in the North Baton Rouge area. Also, she hosted the city's Juneteenth festivities. Her niece says that Sadie often talked about the contributions of African Americans to the country. And to me, it seems really odd that such a powerful person and force of nature could be taken down. But unfortunately, we are discussing what happens next. July of 2019, Miss Sadie was found in the trunk of her car, dead of asphyxiation, just three miles from her home. An unknown caller reported finding her. It wasn't reported if she had wounds, so I'm thinking that they did that because they wanted to kind of hold something. That way, only the killer would know that they knew. Her family said they had seen her earlier that day. No known threats were made against her, and the police said Miss Sadie was a tireless advocate of peace in the community. Miss Sadie is a treasure to our community. She will be missed by BRPD and her loss will be felt in the community she served. According to Wikipedia, a little bit more info about her. She had two children, a son and a daughter, and her daughter, Angela Roberts Machen, was a commissioner on the Greater Baton Rouge Port Commission. The day after they found her body, they did arrest a tenant of hers who owed $1,200 in rent. So I looked him up, and this Ron Bell dude, who's 38, get a look at his picture, he looks 98, was a convicted sex offender, has been charged with first-degree murder for her death, was initially arrested on a warrant for failing to register as a sex offender. Surveillance video captured Bell leaving the area where her ro- where Miss Sadie's body was found and her car. He had admitted to being there, and at the same time, they did find DNA on her body. Miss Sadie had extended Bell a grace with the past due rent, so she was like, "That's fine." She told him, "As long as you give me something, you can stay. That's fine." So she was very kind-hearted. 
Jason Roberts, Mercedes' son, had a message to her killer. You stole light. You stole a warm, loving, giving, and caring woman. And it wasn't just for her family. She cared for the city. She cared for you. She would want forgiveness for you. So like I said, this one really touched me. And again, it just shows that they were thinking maybe it was a hate crime, but it wasn't. It was a bad dude that wanted to not pay his rent. So here's to Miss Sadie. Rest in power. All right. Now this one we're going to do is called the Sydney Shark. Now it's from Atlas Obscura, if you're familiar. I love Atlas Obscura. I listen to their podcast, of course, and I have taken classes through their website. So check into it. They have all kinds of cool stuff. V and I took a, like some Friday night happy hour dinosaur Zoom class. It was really fun. So it's really eclectic. I describe it as National Geographic's um, more eccentric cousin, but I love it. Now, 1935. A shark on display in an Australian aquarium vomits up a human arm. Little did they know that its bout of indigestion was the beginning of a murder investigation and one of Australia's most infamous crime stories. It was a 14-foot tiger shark and had been caught in mid-April off Coogee Beach in Sydney. The fisherman's name was Bert Hobson, and I only mention that because his family is involved in this. He takes it after it gets tangled. He and his son hauled the fish it's actually a mammal, I think, to shore and brought it to the Coogee Aquarium and swimming baths run by his brother for exhibition. After a few days, it was seemed to be adjusting to its new home, but then became irritable, began behaving erratically like ramming his, his head into the, the walls of the tank before sinking to the bottom and swimming in a lazy, irregular fashion. Finally, it started to puke. According to a reporter from the Sydney Morning Herald, who happened to be there and was writing an article about the new display, a copious brown froth which smelled really foul. God, I've been there after a night of drinking in college. From this nastiness come, they find a bird, a rat, a load of muck, and a human arm with a piece of rope tied around it. Okay, so this is where it gets good. I mean, that's good, but wait. Please get there and the coroner. And a shark expert, of course. So they examined the arm. They concluded that it had not been bitten off. There weren't any tooth marks and had been cleanly removed at the shoulder with a blade. So they start a homicide investigation and allowed a newspaper, Sydney's Truth, to print a description and picture of a tattoo found on the arm's bicep. You know, hopefully they'd be able to identify whose arm it was and the person and the killer. A man recognized the tattoo, an image of two boxers squaring off, totally have that on my low back, totally do, and identified the arm as belonging to his brother, James Smith, a bookie, amateur boxer, and small-time crook, who'd gone missing a few weeks earlier. Ah, kindred spirits. James Smith was last seen alive at a hotel in Sydney, drinking and playing dominoes with his friend, Patrick Brady who I mentioned because he had a rap sheet full of forgery convictions. Who plays dominoes? Is that like, was that like a badass thing in 35? It became clear to the police that the two friends night out had taken a bad turn. Brady's landlord told police that Brady had vacated his rented Bayside cottage shortly after Smith went missing and before the lease was up. 
When the landlord looked around the place, the inspection found that a mattress and trunk had been replaced, the walls had been cleaned, and a rowboat included with the cottage had been scrubbed. That's a nice little perk, isn't it? Not the gross stuff, but like the little boat or whatever. With Brady, the police had a suspect. And then they began to find a motive. A cab driver told the investigators that the day after Smith was last seen, he'd driven Brady, who looked really nervous and disheveled, to North Sydney, dropped him off outside a house belonging to Reginald Lloyd Holmes. Now, old Holmesy was a respected boat builder and businessman, but also deeply involved in Sydney's criminal underworld. He controlled a smuggling ring and sometimes employed Smith and Brady to take his business's speedboats to pick up, you know, drugs like cocaine, cigarettes, and other contraband thrown overboard by passing ships. He also arranged insurance scams in which Smith and Brady intentionally sank or set fire to boats and he would get the insurance money. So the detectives figured that after one of these frauds had gotten botched and the insurance company was refusing to pay, that they had a falling out and one of the men had been murdered, had murdered Smith. Both Brady and Holmes were brought in for questioning but refused to talk. While Brady was charged with the murder and further pressed for a confession, Holmes, who claimed to not even know Brady or Smith, was released. Then, twists and turns, my friend, a few days later, Holmes took one of his speedboats out to Sydney's Lavender Bay, shoots himself in the head, falling in the water. He only managed to wound himself <laughs> um, because the small caliber bullet had flattened against his forehead and merely stunned him. What kind of fucking cranium does this guy have? The fall into the water revived him, and he climbed back on the boat, only to find that onlookers had called the police. He led the boats on an hours-long chase around the bay, where he finally gave up and let the tops take him to the hospital. After recovering from his wound, he was ready to talk. And he first tried to say that his suicide attempt was because he was attacked and wasn't a suicide attempt. So he fled in the boat and thought the police were his uh, attackers. Mm-hmm. That's right. Nice try. Eventually, he claimed that Brady had murdered Smith at the cottage, dismembered the body, and buried most of it at sea in a trunk, which would explain the missing items from the apartment and all the cleanup. He kept the one arm, though, and brought it to Holmes, threatening that he would end up like Smith if he didn't pay Brady off. It's like a soap opera, but like with a, like a detached arm or whatever. Afterwards, Brady tied a weight to the arm and threw it in the water where it was swallowed by the shark. And Holmes suffered a nervous breakdown and decided to kill himself on the boat. We think that it's all good, right? Holmes is ready to repeat this all in court. <laughs> Another twist. The night before the trial began, he was shot dead in the car. That's right. He shot dead. The crime scene and his recent behavior suggested suicide, but his impending testimony pointed towards murdering him to keep him quiet. Now, this legal historian named Alex Castles wrote a book about this, and he says another explanation is that he took a hit out on himself. The reason? That would have spared his family any embarrassment of his own crimes that were revealed during the trial and allowed them to collect the life insurance which may not have paid out if he committed suicide. But there's a two-year clause I happen to know. After two years, even if they commit suicide, they can, but don't do it. With Holmes dead, the case against Brady fell apart. 
His attorney argued all the other evidence was circumstantial and, more importantly, that an arm was not a body. And with no body, there's no homicide. (laughs) The attorney says a one-armed Jim Smith could still be alive somewhere. The judge agreed and directed the jury to acquit. Brady was freed, but arrested for forgery charges. He maintained his innocence in the murder until his death in 1965. So Smith's murder was never solved, but Castles in his book suggested that Smith was a police informant and he was killed by a bank robber after Smith provided information that led to the bank robber's arrest. As for the shark... It was killed and opened up in search for more of Smith's remains. But like the man whose arm it swallowed, the fish's days and an informant were done. That is the tale of the Sydney shark. Like I said, a little different, still crimey, and, you know, body part in a shark. Win-win. Well, not really, but story-wise. The final one that I'm going to go over is another local one. This happened many years ago. I live near this area, so this was very impactful to my family and my community. There's not a whole lot on it, but I wanted to pay some type of respect and memory to Jane Jurgens, and her last name is spelled J-U-E-R-G-E-N-S, so I think it's spelled Jurgens. so I apologize if I'm mispronouncing it. And this is the Killing in Ridgewood Park. Now, as I was doing my research, I came across a posting by DebbiePhillips.com and found out that she was a member of Women on Fire, which, according to their website, describes the group as providing support for your dreams, strategies for your goals, and inspiration for your passions. It is a powerful community of women who support one another to their greatest ambitions and toughest transitions. So I just thought that was a great way to start. Again, kind of akin to Miss Sadie. Let's start off showing the strength, the power, the the wonderful, kind spirit and end it. It's going to end positively, too, as far as how I'm presenting it. They did rename the park after her. According to the National Organization of Victims of Juvenile Murderers, Jane Jurgens, 55, of Westerville, was the founder and CEO of People Gen of Westerville and a mother to two sons, one being Andy Jurgens. She was an avid runner and was doing so in Ridgewood, the local park. She didn't know that there was a 16-year-old waiting for her in the woods where she went to run and recharge. Jordan Stewart, a resident in a nearby group home for psychologically troubled teens, attacked her. Jurgens was fatally stabbed, making hers the first homicide in the township since 1991. Now, according to 10TV, Jurgens was stabbed 26 times on a trail. A staff member of the group home told the police he took the boys to the park that day in October of 2013. Stewart took off from the rest of the group, and 20 minutes later, he ran out of the woods with his face scratched and bruised, saying he had tripped and fell. He was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for at least 18 years. Stewart did have previous documented violent incidents. Many question why he was living in the group home where he was able to go to the park and then run off. Jane's law will require group homes to notify police, first responders, and neighbors of their existence. So I looked up Jane's law to see, make sure it went through and passed. And of course it did. It was introduced to the House August 23rd of 2019, also known as H.R. 4203, Jane's Law, the 116th Congress. 
This bill makes it a crime to knowingly travel in interstate or foreign commerce with the intent to evade compliance with a court-ordered property distribution as part of a separation or divorce settlement. I don't know what that means. Here it goes on. Luckily, just one more paragraph. A violator is subject to criminal penalties, a fine, a prison term of up to two years or both, and mandatory restitution in the amount of total unpaid property distribution. That did go through. And I looked up further. When I had been researching, I had seen initially this article that I'm about to go over real quick in the dispatch, the Columbus dispatch. And it's so beautiful. And it just shows how what a supportive, wonderful group of family and friends that she has. Moments after watching his mother's murderer, Jordan Stewart, plead guilty yesterday in a Franklin County courtroom, Andrew Jurgens comforted the killer's grandmother, he embraced Marilyn Barksdale, the woman who raised Stewart, at the back of the courtroom. I told her she's not responsible for his actions, and so she should do what she can to move on, he said. Ron O'Brien said he has rarely seen such an encounter in his 18 years as county prosecutor. The embrace set off a chain reaction. The victim's close friend, Barbara Johnson, also hugged Barksdale and Stewart's uncle, Marlon Barksdale. Really horrific, very shocking. I, I don't think, I think maybe I've gone to that park once since then. And it's very close to my, I used to go there a lot. I mean, it's where we take kids and it's scary. But to know the forgiveness and the love, it's just amazing. And I'm going to end today with a segment called Crime Keeper Beakers Up. That's right, Murder Lab Media Beakers. Two, first one is fearless aviator pioneer, Bessie Coleman. This is in the 1920s. 1922, Bessie Coleman was an African Choctaw American woman who was the first woman of color to have an international flying license. She actually had it two years before Amelia Earhart. Her brother was a veteran of the First World War, and he used to tell her stories about France where women were allowed to fly planes. She applied to schools in the United States, but no school would take a woman of color. So... What does this badass Beakers Up woman do? She teaches herself French, moves there, and then comes back to the States hoping that she can be with her family and, you know, find a career as a pilot. Well, nothing happened. She decided to begin stunt flying because there she could do what she wanted to an extent. She gained a following, quickly became a sensation in both black and white newspapers. She revealed it felt like her duty to encourage flight for African Americans. She was known as Queen Bess, traveled across the country to lecture audiences in churches, theaters, and schools as an authority on aircraft flight while showing films of her work. Amazing, amazing person. Unfortunately, in 1926, on an exploratory flight to scout out a parachute jump location, her mechanic flew and lost control of the plane because there was a wrench in the engine compartment. Coleman was unbuckled and was thrown to her death from 3,500 feet. 10,000 people mourned her coffin in Chicago that year, and black pilots from Chicago instituted an annual flyover of her grave. Her life inspired William Powell to found the Bessie Coleman Aero Club and created the first all-black air show. And in 1977, a group of African-American women pilots established the Bessie Coleman Aviators Club, which I find that wonderful. And I read that from Atlas Obscura, of course, because it's the jam. Well, guys, we did it. 
Thanks for hanging with me. Hope you like kind of the new format. And you know what is happening. Queen V is beckoning me with the sense of salty fish head goodness. I must depart, lab rats. Remember, everyone must find their truth. And mine is Abby Normal. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. I'm sweating my balls off in the truck at a campground.